Abby, do you want to tell our listeners why you were late to this recording? Um, I was knee deep in a really intense puzzle session and completely lost track of time. There's a section of the puzzle that I'm intent on completing before I start the real tasks in my life. And I'm just so close. (laughs) But don't worry, here at the Odd Job Podcast, we make sure that you get a new episode every Monday, despite Abby's puzzle struggles. Yes, despite my puzzle procrastination. I'm not a, is it like a puzzler? Like someone who likes puzzles? I don't know. Is it the term puzzlers? Is there a term for Probably. it? Probably. Puzzler I'm not cool. a I'm not a puzzler, but hey, I understand the struggle. I get it. I never was. You know, it's a very new, very new thing for me. When did you start the puzzle game? Quarantine. It's actually oh, okay. a bad thing for me because I'm a little, how should we put this? OCD, anal. A little OCD. And puzzles are effectively glorified messes. So I do get a little tunnel vision-y. Hence why I was a couple minutes late to this recording. Hey, I really thought I had like an hour before Jamie and I had to talk. It's okay. You know, I'll forgive you for this because I was late to our episode recording with our guest today, Zookeeper Dan, Daniel Rumsey from Down Under. Perfect segue. Zookeeper Dan is awesome. Perhaps the most delightful, no offense to anyone else um, who has been on this podcast because they've all been great, but he was perhaps the most delightful person I've ever interacted with. Just a ray of sunshine. He makes you want to be friends with a snake. Yeah. And I hate snakes. And here's the thing is when we talk about zoos, I think a lot of people want to run to tigers, lions, bears, you know, like the big draws. Oh my. Oh my, (laughs) I should have reordered that a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And that would have been good. (laughs) Little plagiarism there. He made made me really excited about reptiles. Oh yeah, I started Googling tortoises after this episode. Oh yeah, and then we went into wombats. We learned some Australian slangs. Yeah, the platypus, which is Abby's like number one. The plats. Yeah, he does call them plats, which is cool. Yeah, now we know. So uh, Daniel Rumsey, a joy of a person. I think Abby and I would probably agree that he's like a Steve Irwin protege. We stumbled upon his Instagram. It's uh, zookeeper underscore Dan. If you want that animal content and you want to learn some fast facts, this guy is live and in color and is the expert on everything. So follow him. You won't regret it. It is something that will light up your day, especially during these pandemic times. And also I will say the great thing about Dan is he is not in the vein of a Tiger King Joe Mm -hmm. exotic. This is beyond obvious in the episode, but he really, really cares about animals and he cares a lot about their environments and climate change. So the episode is also incredibly informative in that regard. If you are an animal lover, even if you're not, even if you just want to learn what a zookeeper from Australia is up to from a day to day, this is the episode for you. I bet you know nothing about platypus. Yeah. <laughs> are they platypi? Like, what's the plural of platypus? Yeah, I don't, really I don't like to say platypuses. No. Yeah. So I think it's platypi. Plats. That's probably why he says plats. But yeah, he was a complete joy to talk to. So we're really excited about this episode. Yeah. So give Zookeeper Dan a follow. Um, and of course, follow us. 
the Odd Job Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Odd Job Podcast. You can find us on our website at theoddjobpodcast.com or oddjobpodcast.com, depending on how many letters you want to type that day. Um, we've been asking for listener questions and you guys have been great. You have sent us some of the best questions ever that have been featured on our episodes. There's definitely even more to come and that will be available on our Instagram as well as uh, our suggestions page on the website. So please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you and enjoy. Enjoy. This is a good one. This is the Odd Job Podcast. So uh, I've been working as a zookeeper for uh, about a decade, 10 years. I work at the Australian Reptile Park, which is about an hour north of Sydney. Most people are pretty familiar with Sydney uh, in Australia. Uh, and I spend my days working with Galapagos tortoise, Komodo dragons, uh, saltwater crocodiles, some of the world's most venomous snakes, dabble a little bit with koalas and the rest of our cute mammals as well. And yeah, I guess when I first started zookeeping after my first day, I realized this is what I'll do forever. I'm very lucky because when I'm not at work, I love being out in the wild and seeing you know, animals in their native like wild habitats but also too i love keeping animals at home as pets i've been doing it keeping reptiles at home since i was very very young uh, and a lot of those skills i've picked up over the years i can apply to my day-to-day work life so literally you're kind of living the dream because if i wasn't working with reptiles i'd probably just have more at home or, or i'd be out in the bush more so i kind of get to tick those boxes and zookeeping is a very unique field in like everyone says it's the, like your dream life and when you when you know that old saying you find a job you love and you never work again all that kind of thing it really is like that you invest so heavily in the industry and the animals that you work with um, it's certainly not a nine to five standard job that we kind of never stop working it feels like like today's my day off and I'm working um, it's just one of those kind of things if something's going wrong you need to go in and you need to sort it out and you can't clock off at five o'clock because you know some of the animals need care right throughout the night so sometimes it can be quite <laughs> relentless it kind of never <laughs> stops but it's incredibly rewarding too and the whole day it's not just you know coming in and cleaning enclosures and feeding you're interacting with guests all the time you're kind of being that kind of messenger for wildlife and what's happening in the wild to people that visit the zoos or wildlife parks that you may work at uh, and on top of that too you got a lot of people management as well so I work with a pretty large team and that's probably the hardest part of the job working with animals is easy it's uh, <laughs> working with people's the difficult part yeah the real animals so how many animals or types of animals do you work with at the park do you even know the number <laughs> I can make up a number <laughs> Yeah, we have a lot. We have a really large collection of snakes in particular. But yeah, I I would easily say 400 animals in my collection alone. Everything from, you know, our biggest is a 460 kilogram saltwater crocodile. uh, And then we've got everything down to tiny little lizards, which only weigh 50 or 60 grams. And yeah, kind of just, it's quite diverse too. So not only do we have reptiles in the department, but we also care for a lot of spiders as well, funnel spiders, oh. um, which is quite interesting. But that's all for a part of an anti-venom program. And that's the same with the snakes. So the reason we have so many snakes here at the park is we extract venom from the snakes for the production of anti-venom, which saves about 100 people's lives every year in Australia. Wow, that's really, really cool. We'll dig a little deeper into the park, but one question based off uh, kind of your intro there what animals did you grow up with? Did you grow up with snakes or did you grow up with mainly reptiles? 
Yeah, it definitely started and goes way back with reptiles and a little bit with birds as well, but primarily reptiles. And I got a, my first pet lizard when I was about five. I had that lizard for over 20 years. I've still got a handful of reptiles at home now, which I just love like as, as much as my dog. The animal I love the most is my dog. And I'll talk about my dog for hours because he's the best. But That's I think you can Fine with me. That. I love dogs. Oh, <laughs> I still don't understand people that don't like dogs, but anyway, and I think that love I have for my dog and the animals I have at home just kind of transfers to the animals that I have. Well, the animals that I work with, I feel about them the same as what I do with my dog. You know, it's like I, I genuinely love them. If something's wrong with them, I, I, I can't not think about it. I'm very passionate about their care and making sure that they're healthy. And unfortunately, one of the hardest parts of the job of this kind of career is the fact that at times, not everything will be healthy. Not everything will live forever, unfortunately. And that's something I've just never gotten used to. And I, I still struggle with it now. And I've been doing it for such a long time. Um, when something dies or is sick, it really gets to me. And um, I wish I was better at dealing with it. But at the same time, at least it means I've still got like a pretty big heart towards it. But sometimes when something's wrong with an animal, I can't sleep. It definitely can be taxing at times. And that's probably the biggest downside, I think, to is, is trying to deal with that. And I thought by now I would have been better at it. But I'm still pretty, pretty hopeless when it comes to... Uh, dealing with like if an animal's sick or unhealthy well it's probably just a necessary part of the job is that in order to care for these animals you have to be like an extremely empathetic person just to like care for I mean 400 types of animals I don't know if it's 400 animals on a daily basis probably not but you do like intimately get to know every single type of animal (laughs) what was the name of your lizard oh good question my my first (laughs) lizard's name was bluey and that's nothing original because they're a blue tongue skink. And I think everyone that's ever had a blue tongue skink would have called one bluey before. So um, <laughs> even now I still call every blue tongue that I ever touch a bluey because that's Aww. just what I'm so used to. Yeah. And and then when I was about seven or eight years old, I got my first pet snake and that was, its name was Monty and it was a Monty Python, Diamond Python, of course. And yeah, I had that for many, many years. And that's where the love started. It was like, you know, not only did I see a lot of these animals when I used to go bushwalking and I still do a lot of that now, but uh, yeah, learning how to look after them at home uh, in a captive environment, the skills that I learned as a kid, like that helped me progress in my career, I think. And when you say the skills that you learned as a kid, was that caring for your pet specifically or being outside and interacting with them in the wild? Definitely the captive stuff growing up. Mm -hmm. And then as I've gotten older and more experienced, I think the things that I've learned from observing animals in the wild, I've been to apply that more now, particularly, um, I guess, as my career's gone on. But in the beginning, it was all really captive based. But as I said, as the more time you spend out looking for animals that you keep or maybe work with at the park and seeing them in a wild setting, there's little tips, there's little you know behaviours that you might observe that you can bring back. But I definitely think having reptiles, particularly as a kid, and then into my teens and then obviously when I started working, definitely aided in me being able to adapt to keeping a much larger collection. Because really, like if you can get the basic understandings of what a reptile needs and requires, you can apply the different to all different animals really like i i think if you're if you're great at looking at looking after tassie devils there's no reason why you wouldn't be great at looking after koalas or 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 galapagos tortoises wait can we talk about tassie devils or tasmania those are tasmanian devils right yeah did i say (laughs) no i loved it i loved it yeah i love it (laughs) we don't have those in the u.s so what is it like caring for a tasmanian devil wonderful so when when they're when they're small 
<laughs> when they're small, they're actually one of my favorite animals to hand raise. They're quite interactive. They run around the house. They're just like crazy, you know, they're, they're amazing. And then they start figuring out what their teeth can do when they're about one and a half. And that's when it's time to backstep a little bit because when they figure out how powerful their jaws are and what those teeth can do, you don't want to play with them as much then. <laughs> Oh man, <laughs> it's sort of crazy to me playing with a Tasmanian devil at all. Like, doesn't it seem so exotic? Especially because in the US, our wild animals are a little bit more mild. You know what I mean? We got like a deer. The bear is probably the big one. Yeah. And not as many venomous snakes. You guys, you guys got some wild creatures down under. Yeah, everything's just a bit different down here, isn't it? We're pretty yeah. blessed. <laughs> it's cooler. Everything's cooler it's there. Like way cooler. <laughs> everything's very unique. I think that's the best word. Our wildlife is very unique in comparison to other parts of the world. And, you know, our most iconic animals definitely are koala. And um, I just love koalas. They're the best. Do you like them? I thought, and I'm glad I might be able to debunk this. I had heard that koalas could be mean. Are they mean? Don't tell anyone I told you this, but yes, they can be very, okay. they have one of the worst bites like of any animal here. Like, really? They, yeah. Don't want to mess with an angry koala. I didn't know that, Abby. I thought they were just always cuddly. I thought they were so cute. And then for some reason, I think I fell down like an internet koala investigative <laughs> hole. Koala Reddit. <laughs> I don't know, but it's good to know. It's good to know that my Googling wasn't completely off base. That's always a, always a plus. Well, what I find interesting is that you're so empathetic towards snakes. Reptiles, I like, kind of get. I kind of get like a cute lizard. I'm a little afraid of snakes, especially the venomous kind. So like, how do you create a relationship with a snake? You can't really cuddle a snake. <laughs> no, I do definitely. <laughs> I think the relationship's more built on respect than anything else. So like okay. when, when we're handling like a dangerous venomous snake where which we try and be very relaxed and calm and and then hopefully the snake will behave the same way back towards us and it's about in the wild when you encounter a snake it's scared that's why they bite because they see you as a big threat you know you're you're much larger than they are and they want to be able to escape or hide or defend themselves and if they have to defend themselves they're going to bite so i think the whole idea with with snakes in particular is understanding that they don't want to interact with you at all particularly in the wild whereas the ones that we work here at the park we don't really touch them that often. Yes, we have the ability to touch them whenever we need to, but we try and keep those experiences to a minimum. Basically, we want the snake to live comfortably, make sure that all its husbandry requirements are met. And then if we do handle it, we're always slow, gentle, patient. And then in return, generally, not always, the snake will be the same back to you. If you treat the snake like it's going to kill you every time you touch it, of course, the snake's going to be nervous because you're nervous. And right. they can definitely feel that. And there's, I remember there's a, there's a great um, line that Steve Irwin used to say about how his dad told him to, you know, be one with the snake and feel it. I love that clip so much and I've loved it for years. Um, and it's kind of true. Like it's, I know it sounds crazy, but it is true. If you're relaxed and calm, the snake usually feels the same when it's around you. Interesting. But that kind of tracks with something that I have also heard about snakes. Like aren't poisonous baby snakes more dangerous than adult poisonous snakes because of the control of their venom? There is a bit of a misconception around that whole idea that baby snakes will be more dangerous than adult snakes. Because if you think about one thing, very important part about a baby, like if you compare a small brown snake in Australia to an adult, mm -hmm. tiny brown snakes have really small fangs, tiny mm -hmm. venom glands. Yes, they might not have the same venom control that an adult okay. will have, 
But if you look at the reverse side of that, the chances of them biting you and, and, and inducing a large amount of venom is probably quite small in comparison to an adult. So I think it all comes back to the particular species, the size of their fangs. There's so many different, it's all, it's all like all these little moving parts and what's working against you in that possible time. So I definitely would much rather have a negative interaction with a small brown snake than a large one. Okay. But again, we have some, like just to throw that backwards, we've got some smaller brown snakes that produce a high yield and amount of venom than some of our larger ones do. So it does kind of come back to the individual. Interesting. I guess that theory that I had heard was very specific to rattlesnakes in the US. So I don't know if that plays any role in it, but that's fascinating. And that makes a lot of sense. I'm also very interested in how you have all this like knowledge that you're <laughs> dropping here at me. <laughs> I play outside a lot. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you like these types of stories, but I would love to hear about perhaps like your scariest interactions with the snake or most, most memorable interaction with a snake that you've ever had. You deal with so many. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's the kind of guy that gets scared at all. Oh, no, no. I, I, I'm scared of heights. So um, if I was catching a snake on a ladder, I'd probably be quite nervous because of the ladder, not the snake. Um, <laughs> honestly, I, I don't really have any, real scary moments with snakes I, I you know there's been times where i've grabbed snakes like at work and something's happened out of the ordinary where it's you know jumped out like gone past my hand and or just missed as it strike and but every everything someone's been watching over me and kept me safe but um i haven't really had too many bad instances with snakes and, and not really with any dangerous animals to be honest i about three years ago i got chased out of a yard by a big crocodile and I had to jump over the fence and I mistimed my jump and the, the fence went through my leg and I had to get oh. all stitches and my leg was stuck and the crop was still coming. It, that was probably one of the more scary moments and I've still got a nice big scar between my leg because of it. But outside of that, uh, it's been it's been pretty easy. Touch wood, touch wood yeah. so far. <laughs> okay, that that is a terrifying crocodile story. We will circle back to that because I'm sure you have more crocodile intel. Um, have you seen Tiger King? I have. What are your thoughts on how he treats animals, the interactions, all of it? Yes. That show was not about the animals. It was. It, it, it might have started that way, but it was about yeah. a few people, and I, I don't want to use the that word crazy, but I will, that, you know, You're live in their own world, just want a few pet tigers, and they want to make a whole bunch of money out of it. They're not, they're not I wouldn't call joe exotic a zookeeper um he's not a conservationist and yeah that show is very much about the personalities and they have a lot of personality and they're the kind of people that i would happily see not have animals not everyone should be allowed to keep a tiger in their backyard it doesn't work that way so that's kind of my next question is like the people that aren't zookeepers or aren't trained or i would even say like lack the empathy that you have but they they do obtain like these exotic animals. I mean, I know like it might be like an old, old wives' tale, but a woman who owned um, a pet snake, like a very large venomous snake, and she would sleep with him at night, and then she realized that like the snake was stretching out against her body every single night, and he was just sizing how big she was and how big he had to get in order to swallow her. Have you ever hear that story? I've been hearing these stories for a very long time. <laughs> No wonder it's, you're afraid of snakes, Jamie. Like, yeah. I don't know what that <laughs> is. Terrified of things. But I would never like cuddle one. But also, it's just interesting to me that I, I don't really understand, I guess, like the psychology behind someone wanting to own these types of exotic animals without having like the proper training or even like the habitats available, like the Joe Exotic Zoo. And I'm putting that in quotes for our listeners, Zoo. 
like didn't even have like the proper habitats for these types of animals or like even the proper food. So yeah, I guess. We're living in a forever changing world. And, and I think it's really important that the zoo industry stays ahead of the curve. And I think that if you're, if you can't provide your animals with the best possible care and you see some small parks and all around, and I've visited a lot of places in different, not just Australia, but all around the world. And sometimes I visit places and think, geez, this is like, I, I know that sometimes they can't afford to pay their staff. So if they can't yeah. pay their staff, how can they afford to feed them the best food or provide them with the best care? So um, we really need to be tough on some places and I, I don't want to go too deep into it because it gets yeah. pretty political but and also <laughs> don't want to be a hypocrite either um, yeah. but if you can't provide the best possible care for the animals then you shouldn't have them it really is that simple and it's not just about keeping a tiger in a cage anymore it's so much greater than that you should be con contributing actively to global conservation projects or conservation projects that in your region and one thing the reptile park does incredibly well of is deliver conservation outcomes for our native wildlife that we keep here at the park. We've got a not-for-profit organisation called Ozark, which is huge, and it, you know Tasmanian devils, eastern quolls, long-nosed potteroo, Manning River turtle, Hunter River turtle. So we've got all these projects that we're running. And again, it is not for profit, so it's not necessarily here at the park, but I mean, it's still a massive organisation. And so we can hand our heart say that we're delivering for the animals that we work with. Whereas I don't know if a lot of places can do that. A lot of larger zoos, government facilities, particularly the ones that have a good profit margin or are making, you know, at least decent money can give back to wildlife. But the ones that are just skimming through every week and can barely feed their animals, I, I, I just wonder what their future is really. They, the biggest thing I've found with zoos and even private keepers of reptiles is we end up having too many things. We end up stamp collecting. Don't try and be a jack of all trades. Be a master of one. Find something that you're really good at and stick to it. You don't need 100 different things. Just do right. 10 things really well. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I can only imagine the overhead of caring for all of those animals could be like pretty, pretty large. Can we go back to crocodiles? Yeah, didn't you say there's a beast? We have a big crocodile called Elvis. And uh, he's, Elvis. he's four and a half meters long. I forget what that is in feet for you guys, but uh, and I don't even four, know. 14, almost 15 <laughs> okay, feet. Okay. And he's 450 kilograms. Wow. wow. Oh, he's big. Boy. He's big. Elvis yep. in his later years. <laughs> Elvis, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Elvis, <laughs> Elvis, yep. Oh, Jamie, that was good. Um, <laughs> so do you like Elvis? Like, what is a, like, do you have a relationship with Elvis? <laughs> At first I thought you meant like the singer and I, oh. I love Elvis. Love <laughs> like, Elvis. love him, love him. I always... <laughs> I always walk up to the croc show singing Suspicious Minds before I nice. go out there. <laughs> nice. Love that song. But, yeah, I think, um, look, Elvis is a pretty famous crocodile, like, right around the world. Like, he's, he, he, everyone, like, comes to the park. They want to see Elvis. He's, he's a pretty special animal. He's massive. Um, would he kill you? Yep. But w will it ever happen? No. So it's kind of one of those things, like, there's the potential for him to cause harm, but unless you did something really stupid, it's impossible mm -hmm. He doesn't wake up every morning and think today's the day I'm going to kill someone. That's not how they. That's not how they behave. But in saying that, for it to happen, you know, someone one of the keepers would have to make a really, really poor decision or, or, or make a bad mistake. So, yeah, I think it's kind of pretty special to be able to work with such a big, impressive crocodilian species. And they've been on the planet for over 200 million years, and they're um, very special to Australia and other parts of the world. So, yeah, I, I love the crocs. We work with a lot of American alligators as well, and. Mm -hmm. um, 
I love gators. They're, yeah, I can see why Americans love their gators because they're just very special. That video of the big male gator walking across the golf course is like one of my favorite videos. Oh, ever. I love that video. Yeah. So I have a question. So you know how you talked about snakes and be one with the snake, as Irwin's dad said, and they feed off your energy. So say I were in the wild and I run into a crocodile or an alligator, like how do you behave? I guess the biggest thing is um, – to, to, don't put yourself in a situation where you bec- become unstuck. Now, say you're American crocodile. They're not naturally manhunters or anything like that. But obviously, if you're swimming in areas where they're found and one comes past, you, you're taking an unnecessary risk. And in that kind of situation, you've really taken out your responsibility in that situation away. And then I guess it's if, if anything goes wrong, it's not really that animal's fault because they're just right. doing what comes very natural to them. So don't put yourself in any positions where you can become unstuck. Be safe. Like it's, it goes the same of people. I do it too. I, I got a bit, I'm going to say I'll do it as well. I'll walk through the bush with, with, uh, and I'm going to say thongs, but obviously we call thongs something very different here in Australia. <laughs> Sandals, American. Sandals or flip flops or whatever you call them. But yeah, we call them thongs. So if you're we walking call them thongs the bush, too, a bit, sometimes. <laughs> in the 90s maybe. <laughs> if um, you're walking through the bush in uh, sandals and you sh- your feet aren't protected and you step on a snake and it bites you on the foot, that whole interaction could have been avoided by just wearing closed-in shoes. But I guess if you come across any wild animal, just remember there's a very good chance that they're already scared of you. Mm-hmm. So the best thing to do in that situation is remove yourself, just walk in the other direction. Now, I know it can be different depending on the, the size of the animal, whether it's a bear or a crocodile or a snake, but read the situation. Think about the fact they're probably scared of you, and if you can remove yourself immediately, that's the best thing to do. But try, always try and stay calm. If you're calm and relaxed, particularly when you're working with snakes, if you come across a snake, if, if you're trying to chase the snake around the backyard with a, with a shovel, which people do do because you're trying to kill it, that snake's going to be frightened, it's going to be on edge, and if it gets the opportunity, it's probably going to bite. The best thing to do would just be walk away. The best thing about rattlesnakes, and you're so lucky to have rattlesnakes, is they give you the best warning. Best yeah. warning ever. Yeah. yeah, they let you know we they're there. They're shaking. Yeah. yeah. We don't have that. Fascinating. I guess I just won't go to Florida to avoid all situations involving alligators, <laughs> crocodiles. I'll be okay with that. Avoid the gators. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just don't put myself in that position. Okay. So you deal with a lot of animals. And we've kind of talked about this idea of bonding with them. What animals do you think a human can build the best bond with? Oh, it's it's a real hard one, particularly with reptiles, because it's not the same as maybe a bird or a mammal. There's just different relationships there. Um, it's certainly, I, I don't, like, you, you couldn't compare it to a dog. Like, I've got animals that I work with that I feel like it's more like a mutual respect rather than a, mm-hmm. a bond where they want to be around you or anything like that. Yeah. Um, whereas you work with parrots, birds, they want human attention, particularly hand-raised parrots. Um, a lot of mammals can be like that too, if they, particularly if they're hand-raised because they form a bond with people. You don't really get that as much with reptiles, but in saying that, some of the more intelligent reptiles like our Komodo dragons, the tortoises and the croc, they will behave differently with certain keepers. But whether that's more in the way the keeper presents themselves or the way they personally interact, their sound of their voice. So for an example, there could be 100 people at the crocodile yard all yelling out Elvis's name and he won't move. 
if I go down there in plain clothes and just say his name once or twice, he'll come straight over. So they have the ability to recognise you from a group of people for your voice or just seeing you. But in saying that, it's not some kind of really close bond. I can't go up and give him a cuddle because he'll kill me. Yeah. <laughs> and same with the Komodo dragons. They're a big lizard and they come over to you and they'll sit next to you, they'll climb on you, they'll let you give them a pat and all those kind of things. But in saying they'd probably do that with most people just because they find it interesting. They're, they're getting something out of it, whether it's just yeah. um, enriching because of the smells or because they're just interested about what's going on. Why is this human inside my exhibit? So, yeah, it's, it's probably harder with reptiles than other groups. Like you watch the peep on people have with, you know, like a seal or, or, or a dolphin maybe in comparison to a snake. And it is completely different. I had no idea Komodo dragons would do that, that they'd kind of I, like get I'm up on you and cuddle. By- Komodo dragons I think probably because the only Komodo dragon I've ever seen and it wasn't alive it was like taxidermy was in the Natural Museum of History and it looked literally like a dinosaur so for Komodo dragons just for our listeners what are like the top fast facts about Komodo dragons if you have them so Komodo dragons are the world's largest living lizard species they are from Indonesia so Komodo Island obviously is where the majority of their population is they can grow to lengths of about three meters long and weigh 100 kilograms. So I'm 100 kilograms on the dot. I've got a few COVID kilos happening, but yeah, 100 <laughs> kilos. <Same>. So <laughs> you've got a lizard that can be as heavy as I am. So it just goes to show how big they are. They're also a venomous lizard too. Their teeth are serrated down the back. So their teeth are designed to slice. So when they grab a hold of an animal, they rip through flesh. They obviously produce a venom. It stops the body's ability to clot the blood to clot so then they bleed out so um but in captivity they're really relaxed and it's just because they're not afraid they've got nothing to worry about they just roll around the park like they own the joint wait so so if you were bitten by a komodo dragon and you're in the bush you're done for like game over yeah depends where the bite was but yeah if look it would be a nightmare to get bit by if you got bit by a big male komodo dragon you are in a lot of strife, I'd say. If they can take down a water buffalo. That's man. wild. A lizard taking down a water buffalo. I'm telling you, they're like dinosaurs. They are, yeah. yeah. There, was, there was definitely one at the zoo when I grew up, and they I remember seeing it. And it was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal color. seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think the exhibit at the Natural History Museum was like two Komodo dragons like fighting, but they were taxidermy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, two males. So the males yeah. will com- the males will fight. Um, they'll ri- it's called ritualized combat. So they'll fight, and then if you're the big dominant male, you get all the girls. Oh, nice. <laughs> what do you think is the most underrated reptile? Like the reptile that you think is super cool that people don't know about that doesn't get the same hype as like a crocodile. You know, yeah. it's not as well known as Elvis. Who needs the cred? Yeah, probably um, any of the turtles and well. Big yeah. tortoises are what, but turtles are just, how can you not look at a turtle and not smile? They just make you so happy. And, uh, you know, I've been working with animals for a long time and you meet people that don't like dogs or don't like cats or bats or rats or whatever, spiders. You'll never find anyone that doesn't like turtles and tortoises. And they are a little bit underrated. They're, they're, they're spectacular creatures and we've got a lot at the park and we've got a couple of conservation projects for freshwater turtles. And yeah, they're you know, a big part of my day is just caring for turtles. So I'd say turtles are probably the most underrated reptile and they're definitely one of the coolest. And they're really smart, right? Yeah, yeah, particularly the tortoises. Like those big tortoises are really, like when, you know, one of our tortoises has a bit of a sore foot at the moment and um, 
you know, he kind of like sulks and, you know, just like carries on and has become <laughs> a bit of a, yeah, being a bit of a diva and has all this extra attention. And you're like, oh, mate, you just kicked your nail. Like, get over it. Like, come yeah. on. Oh, I love that. You know, um, Dan, you have like a very cool Instagram, which is for our listeners, how we discover Dan. He is at zookeeper underscore Dan. Did I get that right? Yes, thank you. Okay. <laughs> I love your tortoise pictures. I think those are my favorite ones. Oh, so that's they, very nice. Make me so happy. How long do the tortoises that you work with live? Uh, potentially up to 200 years. So um, at the moment, the one, the two that we have here, one's 70, the other one's 57. Um, they, so they've got about 100 years to go. So that's not their bad. Lives. Oh, man. <laughs> You're going to be a blip on their radar of life, man. Very small part. Very small part. That's, that is crazy to think that if even if I was here for 10 years, like that's, you know, one twentieth of their life. Like that is crazy. Yeah. It's like some kid I went to third grade with. Like that's it. Yeah, you yeah, probably don't even yourself. remember his name. Yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> Abby, should we throw out some listener questions? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, a lot of these actually we covered, but oh, interesting. Kind of flipping that last question on its head. What is your least favorite animal um, that question. you work with and why? Oh, um oh. I just broke your heart with this. <laughs> it's um oh, least favorite animal, least favorite, a least favorite. Um Oh, I can't. Um, what about probably? Say so the least. My least favorite part of my job is any meetings I have. Not these. Not 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 uh, doing these. But <laughs> yeah. when I have meetings with my bosses, that's probably my yeah. least favorite. Um, Humans uh, are your least favorite animal. I get that. Um, I, I honestly I can't think of it. Like I, I probably. I really I don't know. I don't know. I I can't think of a least favorite because all the animals I work with are like my absolute favorite. So it's kind of hard to right. pick out one that I don't like. Um, what about yeah, the spiders? I, Do you like the spiders you work with? Oh, look, I'm this, I work with people that are very passionate about spiders and they love spiders. My passion is reptiles. So yeah, mm-hmm. definitely on the spider side, I have a respect for them, but it's not the same love and admiration I have for my scaly reptile friends. That's for sure. Like I, uh, I'm certainly not as passionate about spiders as I am about snakes but say, or rather reptiles. So yeah, probably spiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Let's throw spiders in yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. All right. You answered that. Question. I don't think you're going to offend very many people if you throw spiders under the bus. Yeah. You're, okay. you're not offending me. Other than your friends <laughs> who work closely with them. But are there any animals that you are afraid of? Yeah. Oh, oh, I him. I, you know, I, I've asked, heard this, a lot of people answer this same question and a lot of people say sharks. And I, 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 and for me, I don't know. I, I don't really have a fear of sharks at all, but that's just an interesting question because I've heard a lot of people say sharks and I guess people just don't understand shark behavior very well. And it's very similar to crocodile behavior. It's like mm-hmm. the shark or the crocodile aren't actively hunting people, but sometimes you put yourself in a situation where they, don't, they just associate that as a potential like food item so if you take yourself remove yourself from that situation it doesn't happen um so i find it very easy to avoid sharks and crocodiles by just being you know being safe not swimming in areas where saltwater crocodiles are found or you know avoiding sharks where sharks regularly um will feed etc so yeah but for me if there's an animal that i'm probably a bit scared of that i was going to catch would be like a 
I don't know, maybe like a feral cat or something because they, <laughs> they can be or um, I don't really have any animals that I would say I'm terrified of. Like I've seen, um, been, you know, in different parts of the world and there's nothing that I would, I think if I encountered anything, I'd be that excited by the moment that yeah. even if it was really dangerous, I'd probably be wrapped up in the excitement part rather than the fear. But again, yeah, I, can't, I couldn't think of anything that I'm really terrified of. But sometimes when we have to like, restrain a koala or something like that i get a bit nervous because i'm so much used to reptiles and when you're dealing with mammals particularly in mammal that's quite upset they got big teeth and they like to bite so yeah. yeah i can get a bit nervous with some of the mammals at times see i told you james koalas are mean yeah i had no idea is it just koalas that you sometimes have to work with or are there other mammals that you also yeah the reptile park's with? got um, I'll just rattle off a few koalas, kangaroos, echidnas, platypus, all the Australian iconic stuff, uh, wombats. Um, so yeah, wombats are, wombats are great. Like they're just like a big giant wrecking ball. And yeah, that so fun I, animals. I love wombats. We had a little Wait, wombat. Wait, tell us more about wombats. Yeah. Yeah. Five fast yeah, facts. We, we had a, <laughs> Go again. <laughs> this so is a, a quiz actually. <laughs> This, yeah, this will, this will test me. We had a, we have a few species of wombat in Australia. So the common or wombat that we get around here, you know, they're, they're under threat because obviously uh, habitat loss, but also too the car accidents are a major concern mm. for wombats. Uh, and they suffer from a disease called mange, which is spreading throughout wombats in Australia in particular. I was very lucky. I know I've raised a lot of animals before, but we had a little wombat that her mum was hit by a car. So she was rescued. She was brought to the reptile park. I was actually at home on my weekend. The boss called me and said, hey, you're getting a wombat. It's coming to your house now. You've got to look oh. after it. Make sure you, you know, do the right thing and keep it alive and all that and healthy. So anyway, so it's Saturday afternoon. A wombat gets dropped off to me. And then I had a baby wombat to look after. Oh, um, my God. And I, now, her name was Grace. But I wanted to call her Miley because wrecking ball, you know, the whole thing. Oh, I like that. You have good but, names. They yeah. didn't go with my name. So anyway, she oh. was Grace and she was beautiful. Like, I feel yeah, like she kept... Grace is a bad name for a wrecking ball yeah. wombat, you know? Yeah, I, I think Miley was the best name. But yeah. anyway, totally. so she, um, she'd keep me up all night and the first few weeks, you know, you're always really nervous. And then she started going really well and she was kind of like soft release back into the wild about a year ago, which is pretty amazing. So um, yeah, to be a part of that was really special and, I've had everything from Tassie devils to cockatoos, wombats, uh, wallabies at home with me. And, yeah, it's really, really good. I don't do it now, though. I, I, I used to do it a lot more. And the reason I don't do it now, and it probably sounds a bit selfish, I guess, and maybe it is because I'm getting a little bit older, is unfortunately when you have an animal at home, it does impact. I've got, th we've got, three, I've got three dogs, and they're three dogs that all sleep on the bed. You know, they're, they're yeah. inside dogs. But when you have animals at home, it, it can limit sometimes how much time your dogs can be around. So now I, 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 I couldn't do that to my dogs in particular. So I, I yeah. typically will babysit and I won't go the whole long haul with any animals at, at the moment. That's not selfish. You got to look out for your pups. It's just you can only do so much. Quick question about the mange for the wombats. Has it always been a problem with them, or is that like a recent phenomenon with it's, the wombats? It's similar with the devil facial tumor disease, which is a uh, contagious cancer that Tassie devils get. It's naturally occurring, but it's just become a lot more prolific in the last few decades, in particular. Uh, and unfortunately, what happens, and this happens to a lot of animals, animals can handle when times are tough. 
But the impacts that we're having on our wildlife and, and the biodiversity right around the world is putting the too much stress on them. Mm-hmm. And what happens over time is that stress starts to increase. You watch them become, they start succumbing to viral diseases or other diseases that they've basically been able to cope with for millions of years. The environmental stresses that we're placing onto our wildlife is at an extreme level. And I think we all know that if we don't start doing something now, we're really over the next few decades going to see dramatic declines and loss of biodiversity. And I think it's been highlighted a lot, but because the world is moved so fast and there's so much going on, people forget very quickly. And if you think about the last 12 months, 18 months ago, all everyone was talking about was climate change, Greta Thunberg and all that kind of stuff. It was on the news every day, but then something little come along like coronavirus <laughs> yeah. and it changed the world. And that's been the focal point. And again, it, it, it's, it's kind of masked the fact that, hey, the planet's changing too rapidly. We need to sort it out. And then you have a, a little election over in America that just takes <laughs> up the news every single day. <laughs> yep. and, and you've kind of seen this, again, it's just been swept under the rug. Now, the good thing is, is hopefully as people, like particularly, this seems like the younger generation in particular, they're quite passionate about climate change. They, they, they see the effects that we're having on the planet and they don't want to see it continue. Um, what we need is our political leaders to be strong, to act on it now and to start thinking about what the planet's going to look like in 30 or 40 years. And everyone's got to start thinking about what future they want to leave for their children or their children's children, not just right now. And that's right. been our biggest problem. And Australia is a great example. The Indigenous Australians inhabited Australia for over 65,000 years and all the damage has been caused has just been since European settlement. So um, in just a few hundred years, we've rapidly changed this country through agriculture, our farming, mining, and yeah, it's pretty sad. Like I've visited, I've explored most of this country and it, it's not pretty in some parts. And if we don't act now, then I really worry about what will be left. And I always say the same saying is, if we can't figure out how to save the koala, which is one of the world's most iconic animals, what chance do the rest of our native wildlife have? Like we've only got 50,000, 60,000 koalas left in the country. That's it. That's crazy. That is, that's wild. That is wild. Well, I think actually what you're doing and I... I not to be trite or corny on this podcast, but, and I hope the listeners take this from it is that like everyone could do their small part and prioritize something like this. And that if you do go to a zoo or you do go to your reptile park or um, you do go to a museum is um, at least learning about these types of animals and maybe like what affects them or the adversities ahead, or even in the U S wildfires and things like that. I hope, I hope is something that changes in individuals like day-to-day actions and what they do. So at least what you're doing is helping with that. It must be very, very difficult when you're dealing with Mm -hmm. these animals and seeing that environmental stress on them. Because it sounds like you're very in tune with all your animals every day. I mean, you mentioned a tortoise and the fact that it essentially stubbed his toe and you were aware of that. So it's like, (laughs) I I can't imagine that you don't see like more broadly the impact that climate change is having on all the animals that you work with. there's an interesting story and it's it's just um just to show how quickly it's happened, particularly in the last couple of decades. I was talking to a friend recently and he used to take he's got two daughters and he used to take out his older daughter looking for wildlife all the time. And she was there's about a five year gap. And now the younger daughter's starting to go out with them and the older daughter, there's only a five year generation gap there. She's already telling her about the things that she used to see. We always thought that was between grandparents to us. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's now happening within 
the same fam, the same like you know brothers and sisters mm-hmm. that oh we used to see this here five years ago and this here five years ago, but it's not here anymore. When I heard that story, I let you. I was like, that was yeah. what's supposed to make you. What what are like? I don't have any kids yet, but if I did yeah. have kids, what are they going to see? Like, yeah, right. that's right. so sad. Oh, um, think of the wombats. Think of, think of the wombats. <laughs> the koalas i can't the believe koalas. there's only that limited amount of koalas i had no idea so uh, back to listener questions this is a good one some of the animals have incredibly impressive habitats do you help with that or how do you guys come up with the habitats yeah we the one of the good thing about zoos in particular is they always try to display animals in naturalistic environments so um if you can create something that looks like I think when you're displaying an animal, it should look like you're there. You shouldn't yeah. just walk in and go, it could be in someone's backyard. Like you should walk, you, if you're walking through an aviary and it's subtropical Queensland, that's, and that's what birds you've got in there or, or any, any other mammals, you should walk through that exhibit and feel like that's where you are. You want your displays to be immersive. Now, a lot of our exhibits are starting to age quite a bit. You know, the reptile park's been here for a long time and we're always looking at new ways that, trying to i guess get ahead and i think there's some zoos in america that do an incredible job um one of my favorite zoos is singapore zoo in singapore obviously and they've got another place called the river safari and they've just got all these big beautiful aquariums and uh you walk through like one exhibit where you've just got multiple different species and that's what it's about like let people feel like they're there rather than it just being a tiger in a cage with a shallow pool and that's it you know it's so much more than that i always think with tiger displays if you're doing a tiger's display well you probably shouldn't see the tiger because it'll be hiding like (laughs) it's a funny one and you've got to find the right balance there because people are obviously coming to a wildlife park to see wildlife most people don't want to walk around in the bush for 10 hours to maybe see a koala they would much rather just go to a zoo and see one straight away so there has to be a balance between the two but I think the more naturalistic that you can display animals, the better. And that way you'll encourage more naturalistic behaviours as well. Now, it's pretty easy for a koala. All they do is eat and sleep. So um, <laughs> give them food, they'll go to sleep. But I mean, some other animals, like seeing them move, seeing them active, seeing them actively forage. Uh, and that's where the enrichment side of things comes into it. And that's the direction zoos and wildlife parks are heading. And I'm very glad they are because, you know, I can be pretty critical at times of even what I do in a day-to-day basis. I always want to provide the best possible care and do things better than I used to do it uh, and a lot of my friends are exactly the same we're all very close in particular in like the the reptile world in, in zoos in Australia so we're all very good friends and we all are striving to deliver reptiles I guess we go out and see them in the bush now yeah. we want to replicate that at the park that's very cool is there a specific animal that is particularly difficult to create a habitat for I probably think anything that has um any animal that migrates long distances, um, mm-hmm. any animals that live in complex family groups, sometimes large ungulates in particular, you know, your you giraffe, it, may, it sounds easy. You just put them in a big paddock, right? But how big is a big paddock to a giraffe? Like that's mm-hmm. the kind right. of thing. So yeah, I find animals that, particularly the, the migratory species that might move around quite a bit, making sure that you give them enough space. So there was an exhibit in a zoo in, in South Australia. It's called Monado Zoo. And their lion exhibit, is bigger than their other zoo, the Adelaide Zoo. So you've got Adelaide Zoo, which has been there for a very long time. They've invested heavily in this safari park called Monado Zoo. And Monado, the lion exhibit, is bigger than Adelaide Zoo itself. 
So that just goes to show in the direction in, in, in where we're heading. And, and also, too, the direction of how people want to see and engage with zoos in a captive environment. Um, there is a huge push against zoos right around the world. Like, you, you see it all the time. Like, I, you know, animals shouldn't be in captivity and you see those kind of things. And I get it. And one of the biggest defences for that is where would these animals be if they weren't in zoos because they've lost their habitat? And I, and I, and I get that. That's true. But at the same time, we kind of got to see where these people are coming from. Now, not the extremists that want to see every zoo closed down in the world because zoos do incredible work. Without zoos, it'd be multiple species would be going extinct because the amazing work they do do in terms of conservation, both in situ and ex situ. So zoos definitely have their place in the world. It's just making sure that we stay ahead of the game, keep delivering the best possible care uh, for the for the animals, the wild animals that we keep at the park or any zoo, any zoo around the world. It's like the education, right? I, I don't think everyone's going to have the opportunity or even the privilege to walk through the bush and maybe see one of these animals. So that's why I think zoos, if operated appropriately, are are necessary because the education standpoint is what's going to make people make these like environmental changes. But actually what struck me is, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Blackfish about SeaWorld, um, about the habitats and then just being either uneducated or just, I I don't know, cruel about like the types of habitats they have these whales in. And something that stuck with me during that documentary was that they were saying that the the killer whale was basically in what you would consider like your bathtub was like the size because they have these huge families and they migrate and they need to be interacting with each other. And then not only that is that they have these complex families that they may not even speak the same language with the other killer whales that are in captivity with them. So it's nice to see that, you know, there are some zoos or some facilities that are moving towards that direction of just trying to give more space or keep families together or trying to make it more like a comfortable type of environment. Yeah, and then that's where common sense comes into it. Not every animal will be suited to captivity. That's right. Who can argue that? There's some sometimes you can't provide even the basics. So if that's the case, then there's definitely some species out there that aren't suited to captivity at all. And if you want to do conservation for that species, you have to make sure it's all in the wild, in situ. So yeah, just that's where like common sense is forgotten all the time. If and, and also people don't like being told that they can't do something. And I imagine someone like Joe Exotic would have been exactly like that. <laughs> Clearly. Would have said, I think he exhibited that. that he was exactly like that. I don't <laughs> yeah. think he was doing it for the animals. I think he was doing it for the Joe Exotic merch, you know, that he was selling. Yeah. Everything Speaking of thongs. Do you remember that from the documentary? There was like Joe Exotic thongs, underwears that he was uh, selling in the merch yes, store. Yes, I, I unfortunately do remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. Imagine. It's, it's unfortunate because um, it kind of paints zookeepers because that's what, you know, you know, we're people that look after animals in a captive environment. And then you get tarred with the same, you know, the same brush. I saw some friends that worked at another zoo, well, friends of friends, sorry, and they went to a dress-up party as Joe Exotic. And I thought, do not associate yeah, that right. with yeah. your zoo because that is not a good look. We, no. I don't. No one should idolise him. Like, I, I don't know him personally. You know, I, I, yeah. I can't imagine I'm ever going to meet him. I probably know some of his friends and we probably know mutual people. But, like, I watched that documentary enough to know that he's more about himself than the animals. Like, I've done I've done TV and I've done 
you know, documentaries and all this kind of stuff. And if someone said to me tomorrow, you're never going to do it again, I, I, I couldn't give a stuff. Like I enjoy, I love doing stuff like this. It's great and it's fun. But um, if I never did it again, I'm still going to be a zookeeper. I'm still going to work with the animals I love and I'm never going to miss it. Whereas I think some people in particularly now with whether it's social media or, or trying to fill the, the huge void that Steve Irwin left and, um, but also too, you know, obviously David Attenborough is getting older. There's a lot of people that want to be that next big wildlife person. And it seems like people will do ridiculous things for fame. And they'll also use animals in ridiculous ways for fame. And yeah, yeah I, I totally and I don't, agree with that. Yeah. I don't want to be a hypocrite because obviously I use social media and I post about Hugo and I, I'll film snakes out in the wild. And I'm never really touching them or anything like that, but I like to think I do it in a very positive way and I'm, educational way and respectful way whereas and if you can do that then i guess it's okay but it's when people start to use animals and push the boundaries and go too far that's when you're crossing that line of uh, well i think that, that there is a line there you've got to be on the right side of it yeah i agree i um you know i i think when abby and i were we we brainstorm I mean, Abby and I probably talk every single day about who we want to talk to next. And I know it came actually up a few times with some of our listeners and between Abby and I that we wanted to interview a zookeeper. And that was very much part of like our calculated effort when we were searching for someone. And then we ended up finding you was just like, well, we need someone who's like kind of respectful towards the animals. <laughs> I think it would be pretty easy. Get An it. antidote to the Joe Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that I would feel right interviewing someone who I, I don't believe him to be a zookeeper. I almost believe him to just be like a, a nutty exotic animal owner um, that charges yeah. people to come. You know, I think it's unfortunate too, because like a Steve Irwin and a David Attenborough, there was such like a sincerity to what they were doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that people who are trying to get like the Instagram pictures with like a cub they're, they and, and doing it in the wrong way or insincere so they're never going to get to because that's part of the allure right of those like documentaries and those films did you look up to them growing up where did they were they an inspiration to you to go into zookeeping definitely like as a kid I grew up when when Steve Owen was like in his not not he was in his prime his whole life but I mean yeah. when <laughs> yeah. his, his shows and his docos were just I loved I loved everyone I still me and one of the guys that I work with his name's Jake he's my like to I see he we still have Steve Irwin nights where we watch the old DVDs you know uh, we uh. we love it and I was very lucky to work at Australia Zoo um before I was at the reptile park so uh, I got to know you know not not Steve because obviously he passed away when I was still in high school but to spend time with Robert and Terry and they're like they are the most and but they are the most amazing people and I think Robert Irwin is like the future of wildlife conservation in this country. There's no doubt about it. But outside of that too, I think, you know, he'll be a real voice for climate change. Like he's such a smart person and such an inspiration to so many. Like, you know, you think about the Irwins, they're just perfect, like in everything they do. And um, they're so genuine. And yeah, like it sounds like I'm fangirling a little bit, but um, I have a lot of respect for, yeah, I have a lot of respect for them and what they do. And yeah, I just think that Robert, someone, and Bindi, but I mean, like if I had little kids growing up now, like I want them to idolize people like them, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people out there. I wouldn't want them to be idolizing, but the Irwins are definitely someone to look up to, I I think. And I think Robert's only really just starting to scratch the surface of what he'll do for wildlife in, in, not just in Australia, but around the world. That's very cool. I love that. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a few more questions. Oh, actually, this is interesting. And I should have probably asked this um, when we were talking about turtles. What's the coolest thing about turtles? <laughs> <Those Ooh. are> the- <laughs> yeah, I, I do love question. the turtle talk. Turtle talk. <laughs> so probably, probably one of the cooler things they can do is some turtle species, they can actually extract from their, their butt or their yeah. cloaca, they can actually extract oxygen from the water through their vent, So, which is really cool. So basically they can breathe through their bum is not the correct term, but they can extract oxygen through their cloaca, which means they can stay underwater for extended periods of time. So I think that's pretty cool. That's so cool. Uh, yeah. The best thing about turtles and tortoises is they always look like they're smiling. And I know that's a very anthropomorphic thing to say, but I mean – they always look happy <laughs> and I mean you can't beat an animal that always looks happy so um yeah I think that's probably <laughs> cool and probably the sad part is this is the sad fact what 340 species not including subspecies of turtle and tortoise around the world and about 70 percent are endangered critically endangered and threatened so whilst we love them and we all adore them they're not doing very well in the wild at all yeah. Save the turtles, guys. Save the turtles. The idea that turtles always look like they're smiling made me think of kind of a weird question. So say you're having a really bad day. You woke up, everything's going wrong. You go to work. What is the first animal that you would want to see to cheer you up? This sounds funny, but usually if I've had a really bad day and I say this is like, I love feeding the crocodile because it's just something I dreamt of growing up I wanted to do and the fact that I can literally just go and feed a crocodile whenever I feel like it is really cool like it's like just like one of those little things that I can do that no one else can do you know and um, so yeah I always say no matter how bad my day is I feed the croc and a few hundred people are watching and they love it I teach them about crocodiles and being safe around crocs everything feels right again after that so don't get me wrong there's I've had days where you know, like I've left work in tears or I, you know, haven't slept for a couple of nights because I'm so stressed about stuff that's going on with, with, with the animals. And, um, but, uh, it's so rewarding on top of that too. Yeah. It's not, it's kind of hard to explain because there's times where you just think, wow, it's all too much, but I mean, it, it, it's all part of the journey, I guess. Like there's the, it's up, it's, it's up and down. And I guess you ride the wave the whole time and the things that I've been able to do and accomplish, uh, in the last 10 years, like I, I sometimes forget about how much I have done. Um, mm-hmm. So it's nice to do something like this and reflect on, you know, what's been a crazy year. Like last year, we were dealing with bushfires and then drought. And then we had COVID and closing down and just coming to work without people for th- almost three months. Like all those things that you work through. And, and because of all that, work sent us on a trip looking for reptiles in the Northern Territory. Like how cool is that? Oh, um, that is cool. So, so yeah, you do definitely ride a wave. And I think if you ask any zookeeper, they'll say the same thing. We all, one of the biggest things I think that zookeepers struggle with is the hours that you put in is, is a lot. The passion that you put in, the expectations of you are extremely high, extremely high. And also too, zookeepers generally don't get paid probably as well as they should. And I think as an industry, that's something we should really look to at improving my where I work the reptile park is wonderful but you know they reward the effort that you put in but I I know it's not always like that in other places as well and what happens to a lot of zookeepers in particular they get to about 30 like my age they want to have kids and they want to buy a house and do all those kind of things and they simply can't afford it they can't keep turning up to work for 60 hours a week and earning $45,000 anymore now I'm not sure how that equates to hours and pay over in America but I mean 
here that's not easy to get by off, off, off that. So, or you end up working with zookeepers that work two jobs. So they're working 50 hours a week at the zoo and then they're working 10 hours a week at the bar just to get by. Yeah. Um, as an industry, we need to make sure that we don't just settle for the fact that, and I think this has been in the back of people's minds for a long time, is because people are working with animals and it's what they love doing, that they'll do it for free. But you still want professionals working with the animals. Right. If yeah. you want professionals, you need to pay them as professionals. So um, there has to be a balance there. And I think if we can look as an industry and improving the standards across the board, that would be a good thing. It will see zookeepers stay in the industry longer, which is only a good thing. Right. You want yeah. that retention. You don't want that brain drain because if you lose the the folks who have been around for a very long time who really know the animals and know what to do in certain situations, if you lose them, who is passing on that knowledge to the next right. the next batch of, of zookeepers? What you're doing day in and day out, I mean, there is like a risk to it. Even if you are following the right precautions and you're well-trained, there's always a risk associated with that. So, I mean, people who are willing to put themselves in otherwise risky situations just for the the love and the care of the animals should be compensated for it. So, I agree. Um, <laughs> hopefully you get a raise after this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I, I, I think we have one more question and it's probably... <laughs> Is it a bad question? <laughs> I hate this question. I don't hate, cut that out. I don't, I don't hate this question. Okay. <laughs> I probably won't cut it out. Just Do kangaroos really box? <laughs> they, <laughs> they definitely do. They definitely do. The kangaroos, like, we've got this big male kangaroo that he can throw one really good left jab. <laughs> He's really? Getting, he, oh, yeah. He can fight. He can fight. Um, I don't know where it will be, but I think it's on the Reptile Park page. Someone, a visitor filmed it years ago or a couple of years ago of two kangaroos, our big males. Just It's more clay fighting, but, yeah, yeah. they proper like they, they will go hard at each other at times. And um, you've, I'm sure you would have seen the photos of people boxing kangaroos once upon a time. And I'm thinking, oh, God, we don't do things like scary. that anymore. But, yeah, yeah those, those kangaroos, they can really give it to each other, particularly the boys. Have you ever been punched by a kangaroo? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm smart enough to go stay Really? I think maybe put it on your bucket list. Like, that's a cool story. Wait, what's Just, your funniest injury from an animal? That's a good question. Oh, funniest injury. Oh, well, I'm going to tell you, I'm not telling you mine. I'll tell you about one of my casuals. <laughs> that's fine. She's yeah. going to love hearing this on a podcast because I tell people all the time. She got bitten by one of our male tortoises and had to get stitches in her hand from a tortoise <laughs> how many stitches i look i probably i i had i had an extra stitch on every time i tell the story but i think it's about five or six okay that's a lot of stitches yeah that's a lot that's a lot yeah it was a good oh, it was a good bite he really did a lot of damage so yeah that's probably <laughs> i think it's the funniest one because how do you get bitten by a tortoise i was gonna yeah. say how do you piss off a tortoise like what <laughs> like how know, does like, that work like, they seem so docile. Yeah. I know. That, like, don't get me wrong. They'll, they'll bite if, they're, if they want to. But, yeah, usually you have a lot of time to move your hand away if a tortoise <laughs> right. is trying to bite you. <laughs> that's true. Right, right. Oh, man, that's funny. Oh, I had a question. And this is going to be random. So 
You mentioned platypus. Are they interesting at all? I have a vague memory of doing a project in elementary school on a platypus. And I think I got to pick the animal. I remember no facts about platypus. I don't know why I picked it. But when you mentioned it, I got this like weird flash from elementary school. Are they interesting? Yeah, definitely. Like they, they look like four or five different animals all molded together. Um, <laughs> obviously, they are a, they're a mammal. They live in the water. They're They've got a bill like a duck. They're closely related to echidnas. They're one of the, they're called a monotreme. So they actually lay eggs. Um, and then their little babies are called a puggle. Uh, and they're really, really oh, cute. But, you know. I remember that. That that gave me like a really, really yeah. sharp flashback. <laughs> and they feed on yabbies. And um, yeah, they're um, they're a pretty unique, special animal to Australia. And that's what I mean. It's like you look at all of our animals, whether it's an echidna or a platypus or a koala, and they're just like, you look at them individually and think, how did you even happen? Like what? Yeah, what, yeah what? really weird looking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like what what went wrong? No, it's like, how did you end up like this? Um, but yeah, no, platypus are right up there. We have a couple of plats here at the park. We actually had a few more, but we rescued a few platypus from the droughts um, okay. that were you know, tw- almost 12 months ago, eight months ago. And those platypus were then rehabilitated at the park for about six or seven months and then returned back to the rivers that they were removed from. So um, that's pretty crazy. That's the mammal side of the team, Dean and the rest of his mammal team. And, and of course, uh, with Tim and Haley. but they basically spent a lot of money and time in rehabbing these t- uh, plats and then got them back out into the wild, which I think is one of, like the, one of the cooler things you can ever do. Um, Mm -hmm. seeing an animal released back into its natural habitat is pretty special. So, um, to do that with some plats is really cool. Yeah. So, so it was a good pick for whatever project that was so long ago. That's a good pick. Wait, you said that, what did you say they ate? Yappies? Yeah. Yabos. Yabos. Yabbies. Yabbies. What are yabbies? Like crayfish. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So maybe you don't call them yabbies over there. I don't know. We've got a. (laughs) We've got a lot of funny term words over here. I like. I it. love like a. I love an Australian slang. Yeah. Yeah, like we, we call we'll call our kangaroos. I call every kangaroo Skippy. Skippy. Like, look at a, that Skippy. Yeah, because there was a TV show in Australia <laughs> about a kangaroo called Skippy. So every kangaroo has always been called Skippy to me, and you know it's it's funny. We've got so many different words and slang for stuff, and I always wonder like, do people even know what I'm saying? Like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did oh. not about yabbies, but now we know. Yeah. So now we know. That's good. It's okay. Yeah. We'll just put it. It's on us. Have... The onus yeah. is on us to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. for sure. Yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, last question from me. So when you do rehab these animals and then you bring them out back to the wild, is that a very emotional day for you? <laughs> I feel like that would be a really emotional day yeah. for me. Like when you had to say goodbye to Grace. Yeah. It is, and it isn't, is it? Because you're happy. That's the right result. And I think you have your time with those animals too, and you appreciate that you played your small part. Now it's the next step. I, uh, I, uh, we've been raising some hatchling turtles that are going to be released back into the wild very soon. They've been here for hatched them. I collected the eggs from the wild, hatched them, raised them. To see them released will be quite emotional because the amount of work that's gone into Mm it. Um, but in saying that, it's it's it, that's all part of the process. Uh, I certainly um, no, I, I get more upset if an animal was to 
pass away. Like if that would really right. get to me. Whereas seeing an animal go back into it into the wild, that's it's great. Like sometimes, sometimes too, it's kind of a relief as well. Like to be honest, yeah, like sometimes if you, haven't, if you haven't slept for three months because they've yeah. kept you up all night, you kind of like thank God you're going. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Well, in a in a weird way, once you start, if, if you do decide to have children, you'll be like very well prepared. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. What everyone said. <laughs> Good practice. Good practice. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> this is a little sad. And so I, I'm sorry I'm asking it. But if an animal does pass away, what do you do? Because obviously you're very attached to them. Like, is there any sort of rituals that you do or ceremonies or anything like that? I know, obviously, that's kind of a weird question. But given that you guys do have such an emotional attachment. Yeah, not kind of definitely not. Definitely not ceremonies. But um, yeah, like not like a full fledged like. Yeah, funeral. I, I remember. I remember many years ago. Um, it's a pretty sad story, but this is going back quite a while, and it was probably the first time I'd ever seen a koala die I, from memory. I just so we worked with a really beautiful koala whose name was also uh, Grace, and I remember her becoming quite sick, and it happened quite rapidly. And I just remember sitting there with a good friend of mine who was who was the koala keeper, and we just sat there holding Grace, and you knew what was coming. You knew it was quite towards yeah. the end, right before she went to the vet. And I just remember being in that moment and just kind of, uh, it's going to make me emotional now, but um, it was one of those ones where it was the first time, you know, you know, been a long time where I just felt like, yeah, you're so helpless. You know what's coming. You love this animal. You've been looking after it for years and to see those last final moments, that, that's, that's pretty hard, but mm-hmm. not really like ceremony. Like it's kind of like once it goes to the vet, that's kind of your part is, is, is done. And mm-hmm. it's not, there is times where, you know, you think, should I have done this? Could I have done that? Should we have gone down this path? But you're always going to question decisions after the fact. But I remember that moment. It was just kind of like that real – the only time I can remember something else similar was I remember when my dad took one of our shepherds, Apollo, to the vet, and when he came home after he'd been put down and just seeing how upset my dad was and how – it just like – took me back to that as well it's like this this incredible bond that you can form with animals that you know is is so you know it's empowering but also too you know just it can it can crush you at the same time um my my german shepherd just turned seven and i hate it because they don't live forever and i I start keep now i'm already in that zone of like you know he's over he's you know he's seven now he's becoming an older dog i don't know what i'm gonna do without him he's they're, they're by your side every single day for such a long time and i saw a beautiful post about it and i can't remember where about that that relationship with animals and no one talks about the end and how bad that can be and unfortunately as a zookeeper you probably experience that more because you work with far more animals than you would ever have at home yeah yeah i i i agree with the whole dog thing i've always grown up with dogs and when a dog dies it's like it's a part of your family that dies. It's like one of the worst things ever. So I totally yeah. so actually ending on a higher note. Did you know yes. that the Pope, <laughs> the Pope says that the do- dogs go to heaven, the most recent Pope, Pope Francis, well, I hope, right? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. My dog's, yeah. My dog's an angel. So I'm sure yeah. he will. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So just letting you know, like the Pope make, is making sure that the dogs go, all dogs go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, 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 yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> there's a good saying it's like if dogs aren't in heaven i want to go where they go yeah 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 oh, i like true. that i like that yeah 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 um 
All right. Well, Abby, do you have any more questions? You know, I kind of think we covered the waterfront here. This was a very fascinating conversation. Um, Yeah, Dan, honestly, this was great. And I would love to have you back. Yeah, please. (laughs) I wonder if this, this will prompt even more questions. I'm sure there are things you said that people would love to hear a follow-up on. I do want to thank you too, just talking not only about your job, but about the environment and climate change and those really important issues, they're critical. And so thank you for all the work you do. Well, thank you both for having me on. And yeah, if you want to chat again sometime, more than happy to. It was a lot of fun. Say hi to the animals for us. Bye, See Dan. you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the Odd Job Podcast.